turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando, Alan Dempsey, the one and only. He does our engineering each weekend. And uh, Andrew Hurdliska produces this show. Chris Norton joins us, author of The Seven Longest Yards. It's quite a story. And first of all, Chris, welcome. I'm so glad that we can visit. How are you doing? Hey, Pat. I'm doing well. Good to be on the show. Um, Chris and his wife live in Wellington, Florida, down near West Palm Beach. Chris, let's go back to the beginning. I want you to uh, share your story and what's the background leading into this book. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in a small town in Iowa. Yes. And uh, just grew up loving sports. And then I, I got a uh, opportunity to play college football at Luther College. Yes. And so in the, my freshman year, as a, an 18-year-old kid, uh, sixth game of the season, I'm covering a kick on the kickoff. And I'm sprinting downfield, and I see it's opening for me. And I know this ball carrier is going to run through the hole. And I'm going to stop him. I'm going to drive my shoulder through his legs, and hopefully he drops the ball. And so I see my opening, and I dive for his legs, and I mistimed my jump just by a split second. And I collide with him at full speed, full force, but uh, instead of hitting him with my shoulder, his knees struck the side of my neck. Mm. And in, in an instant, uh, I'm laying on the ground, face down motionless. I can't move a thing. I hear the collision of the players above me, the whistle blows, the pile clears, but I can't get up. Mm. And I'm completely conscious, and I just have no idea what is what's going on. Like, why can't I move? And I'm telling myself it's going to be okay. You know, bad things happen to other people. Just give it a little bit longer for your body to respond, and it'll get right up off the field. And as time went on, you know, nothing was changing. And little did I know, I just suffered a severe spinal cord injury, and that would completely change the, the course of my life. So what was the next step? What happened next? So uh, the athletic trainers run out, and they begin to, you know, assess the situation. You know, they're asking me questions like, Chris, can you try making a fist with your hand? I tried moving my arm, tried making a fist, curl my fingers. Just nothing was happening. Chris, can you uh, feel us touching your leg? And I couldn't feel a thing. And I, they keep testing whether to see if my movement or feeling was coming back. And the answer was always no. And the stadium you know, went completely silent. Eventually, my family comes down the field. They're trying to you know, say all the right things and encourage me. But you can just hear the, feel the worry in their voice. And uh, eventually, the paramedics calling for a helicopter. And that's when I knew that this is this is serious. Like I've been to a lot of sporting events, and for someone to have to call in for a helicopter uh, was a big deal. And so I, at that point, I just closed my eyes. I tried to block it all out. Like I tried to escape the reality that I was living in. And I just started to pray, just like God, please, just give me the strength. Let me get back up off this field. Let me walk again. Just you know, let me get back to my life. I got this plan for myself. Just Please, God, don't change anything. But, you know, sometimes God has a better plan for you than the plan you had for yourself. And uh, eventually I'm wheeled across the field uh, on the stretcher and uh, taken to the local hospital, and I'm flown out to Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Mm. I have an emergency surgery and uh, wake up the next day thinking, you know, blurry-eyed and, just exhausted and um, blurry vision, and the surgeon comes in and says, "Chris, you have a three percent chance of ever regaining feeling or movement." 
back below your neck. And I was just stunned. Mm. I just couldn't believe it. Just like, how can this be? Like, just the other day, I was walking. I was suiting up for my college football game. Now, I'm lying in bed with a 3% chance of ever moving anything again. I'm, I'm paralyzed. Like, I was so numb when I heard that. And then I got mad. Where I was just like, no way, not me. This is not going to be my life. I'm going to do whatever I can to beat this. And I'm not going to end up like a 97% and don't recover. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be part of that 3%. And so I just get going to work on day one, just doing everything I can, which is to nod my head yes and no. And I just keep nodding my head yes and no for hours. Eventually I shrug my left shoulder, breaking the odds. And it just was a gradual process. After that, just taking it one day at a time, uh, lots of prayers, and just you know holding on to the faith that things are going to come out of this, and uh, just don't give up. So, what's your situation now, Chris? So uh, right now, um, I'm still I still use a wheelchair to get around, but I'm able to use my arms to to push myself around. Mm-hmm. I have strength in my legs. So I can, um, you know, stand up with assistance, uh, walk with some assistance. It's not, um, like independent or functional, like to do all the time, but just, that's a great way for me to just exercise and to transfer to to different vehicles or into the bed. It makes it a lot easier. Um, but, uh, that's kind of where physically where I'm at. And it took, you know, now I'm almost nine years out from, my injury and just been, you know, countless hours of physical therapy, occupational therapy, um, started out with a, a toe wiggle as the first movement I got, which came six weeks after my injury. And it just a slow, gradual process of just fighting for every little bit of movement and strength that I, I could, I could muster from this injury. And, uh, a big a moment for, my my wife and I came for my graduation. Um, I actually proposed to her the day before my college graduation, but I had set this goal that I'm going to walk across the stage. Mm. I didn't know how I was going to do it at the time. I said it, you know, four years ago, and I just worked extremely hard. And I just wanted to see it come through, and Emily really helped train uh, me for this moment as well. Um, she's my wife, and this graduation walk, it went viral. It went over 300 million people have mm. seen that video. Mm. And so that just really opened my eyes to just the opportunity to uh, really give back and to inspire others and uh, just offer hope. Uh, just People are just looking for more hope in their lives and a shift of perspective and um, just something that's to really ground them and to keep them motivated to move forward past their own struggles <sighs> and struggles. And so that really has driven myself and my wife, Emily, to just continue to try to to give back and to share a story to uplift people. Tell me more about Emily. Yeah, so Emily, I met her uh, three years after my injury, and we we met online, and she's a very passionate, uh, compassionate uh, woman. She's beautiful, and uh, she just looked past all my physical challenges and just looked at me for who I was as a person, uh, which is just really special. And she has this huge heart for giving back and just helping others. So her passion is to help kids who are like in the foster care system. And so she actually um, encouraged us to get licensed to be foster parents. And so we've been foster parents now for a number of years and we have fostered 17 children um, now. And then we've also adopted five girls as well. So like, thankfully, uh, you know, Emily opened my eyes to this world of uh, these kids who, who need a home, who just want to feel loved and special. And there's so many that don't feel that. And so to be able to provide that uh, for them, has been the most rewarding, um, most beautiful thing that we've ever done. And, we will continue to do, but uh, she just has all this energy and this passion to just go, go, go. And 
uh, always think about others. She's so selfless and uh, just very blessed to have someone like that in my life. Chris Norton is with us. Uh, the book, The Seven Longest Yards. Uh, we've got another segment with Chris from his home in Wellington, Florida. You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Stay with us. More with Chris Norton right after these messages. Chris Norton is our guest uh, from Wellington, Florida. His book is called The Seven Longest Yards. Chris, I want to hear more about this adoption of five girls. How did it come about? Uh, where did the girls come from? How old are they when you got them? What's your, what's your home like? I, I want to hear that story. Yeah, so I, I guess it goes back to really when Emily was in high school. So when Emily was in high school, she uh, did like a mentorship program, and she started mentoring this girl named Whitley. And Whitley uh, just really just they became attached, and Emily just, just loved her and wanted the best for her. Well, Whitley got placed into the foster care system and uh, was at a group home, and so Emily like kind of witnessed all this unfolding and the, the, the troubles that she went through and the heartache uh, that she was going on and just opened her eyes to this world and just wanted to do everything in her power to help Whitley and anybody else who was going through that. Well, a number of years later, while we're in Florida, we were actually living in Port St. Lucie, Emily gets a call and it's from Whitley. Now she's you know, 17 years old. They've been in touch for Every single year, they, they're really close. Well, Whitley has been through 18 placements, um, and she was crying, just saying that, you know, they're going to send her to juvie. She has nowhere to go, and she needs a home. Otherwise, you know, she's going to juvie, and she just wants love. She wants stability in her life, and she just begs us to become foster parents. And this is when we're 23, 24 years old. Mm. And so it was a huge decision that we had to make. And, you know, ultimately we just felt that we needed to, to do something for her because no one else had been stepping up for her. And um, again, we'd be her 19th placement, although we were very underage and she's only six and seven years younger than us. We knew that we could give her a better life than what, you know, a juvenile detention center or, you know, a place like that could ever give her and we could give her a chance to get her life back on track and that she just wanted a chance to, to do do right. And so he took his leap of faith and um, said yes and got all our foster care license and training done. And so we took her for her senior year of high school. And it was, you know, as you can imagine, a lot of there's some ups, there's a lot of dads, a lot of struggles with just trying to, um, show her, you know, the the right way and how to do things, and uh, to just finish out school and like how important getting your you know high school diploma is. And, and thankfully, she she was able to graduate. And so after she graduated, she went back to her hometown to to live with a, a family member. And then Emily and I were like, we we need to continue to foster. Like this is definitely something that we need to do for our area. There's a lot of kids available, so we just kept taking in kids and. You know, our first thing was, okay, we're not going to take anybody under uh, over two years old and just one child. And our first call was a for a three-year-old and a two-month-old. And we eventually said yes. Emily's really persuasive. And so we took them in. And then you just realize that, you know, after going through it with them and, like, you just fall in love with them and you realize you can handle more than what you ever thought possible. And so we wanted to just continue to do that. Um, and eventually they transitioned out and then we just kept opening our home for more and more kids. And then eventually uh, we got one child and then we get a call about these four girls and they're asking, can you take any one of them? And Emily and I just kind of prayed on it and uh, we learned about who they were and Emily had a prior connection with them in the past because Emily worked at a group home in the area and got to know two of the girls and she and I believe that we can't separate these girls. we got to keep them together. Like they've been separated so much of their lives 
that we got to take them. And that this time they're eight, six, four, and two years old. And so we uh, said yes to them. This is like uh, even before uh, we were supposed to get married. And um, we just felt, again, called to help these girls out. And so we took them in. We had five kids, uh, which was just crazy. And, uh, but we, we made it work. And uh, we helped them through a lot of their struggles and their challenges. And we, we fell in love with these four sisters. And eventually we adopted Whitley when Whitley was 19 years old back in December 2018, and then we adopted these four girls in February of 2019, and their ages are now uh, 20, 10, 8, 6, and 3. Uh, good for you. That's a great story. Chris, uh, I, I can understand everything you're saying uh, because uh, over a 10-year period from 1983 to 1993, uh, we adopted 14 children uh, from, oh, wow. from around the world, uh, four different countries, 14 children, and uh, they're all adults now. The uh, youngest is 33. The oldest is 47. Uh, we ended up with a family of 19 children, uh, 14 adopted. So as you're sharing your story, uh, it sure rings a bell with me. And uh, yeah. a, a great story it is. And I'm... Uh, I'm I'm thrilled to hear it. So you're just getting started. Well, you. You're just getting started. Uh, who, yeah, we are. Who 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 knows where this is going to end? Uh, we exactly. pe- pe- people ask me all the time. Well, wh- how did this come about? And well, the answer well, we we just had a hard time saying no. Uh, yeah, it is. You, you know the feeling. <laughs> we we kept saying, well, what's two more? You know, or what what yep. what's four more? <laughs> so it just kept. Yeah. building and it sounds as I'm listening to you it uh, brings back uh, a lot of memories so now now Emily I, I'm assuming is a full-time mother I mean is, is that what's going on in her life yeah she is she's a full-time mother uh, she helped me out too um, with my kind of day-to-day needs and also uh, I'm a motivational speaker so I travel the country do you? Share my message, and so she helps me. Yeah, so she helps me um, with my different keynotes and, and messaging and preparation for those presentations. So just um, corporations, associations, uh, you know, churches, colleges, um, kind of you name it. Uh, it's all over the place. It's just uh, people just want that, you know, that motivation, that inspirational to overcome their own challenges and their obstacles because we all go through challenges and obstacles. And so I just share. You know, the steps that I took, steps that anyone can take to uh, rise above them. How do you handle your travel? What 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 is uh, what are flights like? Yeah, so I have a uh, an assistant that travels with me. Uh-huh. Uh, he's actually going to be my future brother-in-law, and he's super helpful. And he's you know, the reason why I can make it work to you know travel through airlines and rental cars and car services and transfers and everything. Uh, airlines can be a little tricky. Um, you know, they've done some damage to my chair. They definitely, um, wear down the, uh, the life of my chair. Uh, but they're also pretty good about, they do like really break something that's replacing it. Um, and then, uh, yeah, sometimes, you know, the long rides are kind of hard on your body, but, um, I love it though. Like I love seeing new places and meeting new people and, uh, just having a chance to connect with people and, hopefully uh, inspire them to just to keep going and not give up. Chris, <clears throat> what would be a typical message uh, that you deliver to a group? Yeah, so it depends on what they're looking for in the theme. I'm going to weave in, you know, my story and my action steps with their theme. Um, but just a lot of times it's just, you know, overcoming adversity. It's um, being bold. It's uh, rising up to the challenge and, anything like that. So, you know, I'll just incorporate uh, my stories, you know, sometimes in stories too about kindness. I think that's something um, some people miss. It's just being thoughtful and kindful to other people. Uh, so one of the stories that I share uh, is just about this woman who, who impacted my life and, and that we all have the opportunity to impact other people's lives. And I noticed that people, like they see my challenges, like I'm in a wheelchair 
Um, I don't move my body as well. So people are super nice to me. They're really encouraging towards me. But the thing is, like, I don't consider my challenges greater than anyone else's. You can just see my challenges. And most of the painful challenges that we're enduring, don't you can't see that. Uh, you can't see someone going through depression, a divorce, uh, struggling to pay their bills. You can't, sometimes you can't even see cancer. So without like the painful signs, it's difficult to know like who needs you to be there for them and to speak life to them and just be kind. And that kindness and being nice is a choice that we all get to make. And I see people make that choice with me. And if they can make that choice with me, they can make it with anyone, even if you can't see their challenges. What is your advice to families uh, with youngsters who want to play football, youth football? Uh, What what do you tell them? Yeah, that's um, a good good question. Uh, So I feel like if you're really young, uh, like before middle school, I like I wouldn't put my child in tackle football. Uh, they can play flag football. They can uh, do those sort of things. But uh, tackle football at a really young age, I just um, I just want to let my son do that. I don't have a son, but if I did, that's what I would do. Uh, I I'm more worried about concussions than spinal cord injuries. Like what happened to me is so rare. It's such a freak accident. I don't discourage anyone from playing football because of what happened to me. Now, with concussions, again, like I said, like that's a, a scarier issue and a more frequent, prevalent issue. Uh, that's, that's something you need to be aware about. And uh, it's just it's kind of a scary thing for me, I think, maybe starting out too young. Um, but, again, the game, it has taught me a lot about life, and it's really helped me like realize my own potential in myself and that I can endure a lot more than what I ever thought possible. It taught me you know, values of like teamwork, um, endurance and just perseverance, um, things that I feel like I, I never got from any other sport. I played a lot of sports, but um, there's something about football that really opened my eyes to my own capabilities and things that, you know, I apply every single day and something I, I would never want to take back are those experiences. So I'm, I'm thankful for the game. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, that freak accident happened, but I mean, you can have an accident, you know, in your car, uh, falling, uh, you know, there's so many different ways to, to get injured besides just playing football. Chris Norton is our guest, author of the seven longest yards. Chris, what is your advice? What would you and Emily say uh, to families who might be considering foster care and or adoption? What do you tell them? Well, it's been the greatest thing that we've ever done. And we, we love it so much and I think uh, you should try it and you should try it for yourself and I think one of the things that a lot of people say to us is that oh I could never um, let them go like I would it would hurt us too much to see them leave but what we think what we believe in is that we'd rather have our adult hearts hurt so that these kids for the time that they're with us that they can experience love and just unconditional love and that to help them feel special and that that will carry with them and that'll be something that they'll always want and desire to know in their heart that they're special and love. And we also, you know, you know, point them towards God and to show them that there is a God and to have that faith and that something that they can always depend on and lean on uh, whether they're with us or not. So all those different things that we're able to do with them in our home we feel is could be invaluable to them for the rest of their lives. We don't know. So if that means that we have to hurt um, to let them go, but if I can help them in their, the long run, like it was way well more than than worth it. And, uh, you know, every child deserves a chance to to feel that. And so you, whoever's listening, whoever's thinking about doing that, like you could be that person that changes the course of their life and you can be a part of their life. And that could just, it could mean so much to, to them and this world. What's been the reaction to your book, The Seven Longest Yards? It's been a, a great reaction. We're really grateful and thankful that people just have taken so much out of it. Uh, you know, we believe that, you know, life's lowest moments can be the source 
of our greatest gifts. And so we are pretty vulnerable in this book. And uh, a thing about two that surprises people is that Emily, who's this, you know, beautiful, just intelligent woman, like she actually went through uh, one of those painful challenges I talked about that you can't see. And she went through a period of anxiety and depression and she really had to work through that time. And uh, just that can happen to anybody. And it's easy to hide those challenges. And so Emily's pretty vulnerable about that and how she's able to get through that with her faith and then also with some medical help. So um, some of those things I think in the book uh, could really uh, change someone's life. My guest has been Chris Norton, author of The Seven Longest Yards. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We've got more after this. And just a reminder, you're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Chris Norton, our guest in that first segment, talking about the seven longest yards. Jeffrey Dean has a new book out, Raising Successful Teens. His seventh book uh, on this topic uh, with Random House. Uh, Jeffrey is based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, good to catch up with you, Jeff. How you doing? <clears throat> yeah, doing great. Great to speak with you. Thanks for having me on the show today. Why? <clears throat> why so many books out there about dealing and raising teenagers? Is it that big a deal? Well, I tell you, I've got two living in my home, and we are every day enjoying the journey, but realizing the challenges that come with that. My books really come as an extension of of my life. The last 26 years, Pat, I've been on the road working with students all over America into four other countries. I, through a friend, was given an invitation 26 years ago to come and hang out with him at his church and his youth group. And at that moment, I fell in love with students, started communicating to them, writing for them. And so we've been in schools all over America. You can imagine with speaking at events where students are, I learn a lot about students and have come to understand the challenges they face. And so now as a parent to teens myself, I wrote this book with my experiences at home, but equally important, my experiences on the road to help parents every day be the parent their kids need them to be. And more importantly, the parent that God is creating them to be. Jeffrey, what are teens dealing with today uh, that uh, we had no awareness of uh, back when we were teens or when we were raising children years ago? What's going on today? Well, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, as Scripture tells us, but I tell you, it sure is packaged differently now. And that's a great question, Pat, because of all the things that parents contact our ministry about, uh, at the top of the list, it's just the challenges families are facing with these devices. Kids have these, as you know, these devices in their hands that uh, often are difficult to take from their hands. And with one click, our kids can jump into just about anything. So I talk a lot in my new book, Raising Successful Teens, about the journey that you as a parent have to be on as well, to stay culturally uh, tuned in to what your kids are doing, and really all of that begins with what they're using. And so we, we talk a lot about cell phone etiquette. Uh, we talk a lot about the challenges that kids are facing with their devices and that parents have got to be all in when it comes to raising kids, not just in helping them with their homework or setting curfew, but knowing who their kids are following, uh, keeping up with their socials and being involved in just their daily lives, whether it be through a mobile device uh, an iPad, a laptop, as we know, technology is here to stay. And if parents aren't working to keep up, then they're probably not keeping involved in their kids' lives. So important. Should teens be allowed to have um, iPhones, for example, when they're 12, 13 years old or younger? You know, Pat, I'm asked that question a lot, and I tell parents, I can't make that decision for you. I can tell you my kids didn't start that early, mm-hmm. but... Many kids do, and most kids I meet on the road at ages 10, at ages 11, at ages 12 are already, if they don't own their own device, they definitely have access to a device. So I tell parents, whenever you allow that access, whether it be them using your device or you giving them their own device, you have to establish parameters. You, it's impossible to think that you can just give your kid a device and give them freedom and think that trouble won't find them. 
We know that porn's a $4 billion industry, and we know that uh, kids are, are tempted to uh, use these devices in ways that are less than best for them. Just about every time they pick up their phone, there's that temptation. And so parents have to keep those parameters, keep tabs on their, their kids' uh, online social life, and they must establish those parameters and clearly um, clearly continue to work to just stay involved in what their kids are doing online. Yes, it's a lot of work. I have parents tell me all the time with Jeffrey, that's just a lot of work. Absolutely, it's a lot of work. I remind parents in this book that being a, being a parent is the toughest job you're ever going to have, but it's also the toughest job you could ever love. And keeping up with what your kids are doing online and with their devices is critical to their safety and their success. Uh, we just... Uh... Uh, bought iPhones, my wife and I, this past weekend, iPhone 11. Uh, we know nothing about them, but we've got them. And guess what? Uh, two young granddaughters are teaching us how to, understand how to use them. Oh, yeah, they're, they're teaching us how to use them. Uh, these girls yeah. are 12 and 14, I guess, and they're instructing us now on how to use these these pieces of equipment. Um, you're so right. Does that, so we, you know, we find that that's normal. I'll tell you, my girls are even showing me things and I, I think I'm pretty savvy on all this, but I'm amazed at what they know. Uh, you know, which is just a great reminder for all parents listening that, you know, your student probably already has a digital footprint, uh, whether it be social media or the browsers they use or their, their photo galleries and the subscriptions they manage videos, YouTube, I mean, you name it. Pretty much anything that you do on the Internet leaves a trace. And so most students don't, really don't give it a second thought when they think about adding their name or their photo to apps and games and websites, but they need to know this, and we need to communicate this to them because our kids are the team market. I mean, corporations, you know this, Pat, they work so hard to lure consumers, especially young consumers, to their products. And when a team makes a purchase or searches using a mobile device, advertisers can... Uh, create links between their product and their service that that kid is interested in. So they have a digital footprint. They know where our kids are, what they're doing, what they're looking at. And so it's all out there. And that's why we as parents must be out there too, knowing our, our kids' logins, know their teens' friends online, monitor their pics and their streaks, of course, setting limitations on uh, their usage. Just I tell parents, just as your kids have schools at rules, or, or rather rules at school, you got to have rules when it comes to the school of your home life and when it comes to that device. So important because our kids are learning life, sadly, by using these devices. And in just one click, trouble is lurking. That's why we have to be involved. In the book, Raising Successful Teens, I spend two chapters on this, Pat. Mm. And I walk through uh, steps that parents can take to safeguard their home, to porn-proof their home, to help their kids, whatever their ages are, learn how to use that device in the right way, in a healthy way, and to set those boundaries. And the key to all of that is mom and dad's involvement. Jeffrey, uh, wherever you go, uh, you are referred to as a teen culture expert. Uh, how did that come about? What, uh, what was the trigger here? You know, I think it's just years of just being on the road and being out there and being in front of students. There are a lot of people who travel and speak, obviously, and, you know, there are so many people who write, and there are many people who write books for, uh, for this student culture. I think what sets us apart and what really has given me the privilege to, to better understand the culture and to be labeled as that teen culture expert is that I have spent my working career since college with students. I've walked the halls of over 4,000 public schools. We've been over mm. in front of more uh, than 4 million students in detention centers and at music festivals. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of money you make in working with students. But, Pat, I tell you what, it has been a joy to be able, just yesterday I was in uh, a public school here in Seattle, Washington, where I'm speaking this week. And after speaking at this school and being in this assembly, I had a couple of students come up and talk with me. And one in particular shared with me about their mom and dad's divorce and what, uh, she was going through and just the emptiness she felt on the inside. And it just it gave me a privilege to do, I think, what I'm best at, Pat, and that's listening. Mm. So I've really come to understand the culture of students because I have been given this privileged insight into their lives. I stand before them and I speak truth in an assembly. And then I just sit and I listen and they come and they want to talk and they want someone who will listen and who someone who cares. And 
So that's why I put all of this into the book to say, hey, I, I'm the one who can write this book, not because I'm great at what I do, but because I've really become a really good listener. Students share their stories and their hurts with me. And now as a parent to two teen daughters, I get it more than I've ever got it, Pat. And I just want parents to know your kids are counting on you. You're the greatest influence in their life. You may not consider yourself to be. You might think that they're looking at pop stars and rock stars and jock stars and their friends or their coaches or their teachers. I'm telling you, at the top of the list, kids overwhelmingly tell me mom and dad is the greatest influence in my life, Pat. And so throughout this book, and every time I have an opportunity to be on the radio with someone like yourself, I just remind parents, your kids are watching. What are they learning when they're watching you lead? Uh, Jeffrey, how do we shape the spiritual life of our teens? Wow, great question. You know, every book that I've written, and I appreciate you mentioning it earlier, this is, this is my seventh book. I'm just I'm honored to write. I'm amazed that God's given me this platform to write. Uh, but in everything I write, I remind students, I remind parents that it all begins in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And who we are is defined by Him, not by the world, not by status, not by how many followers we have. And I tell you, that's a message our kids sure need to hear. And so... In this uh, book, I spend a chapter and a half helping parents understand how you create a home that honors the Lord. And I talk about what it means to be in the Word with your family. And I really, I walk through 10 questions that I give parents an opportunity to answer about just the spiritual temperature of their home. And one of those questions is, are you in the Word with your family? Because if you're not in the Word with your family, there's the starting point. If you're not in the Word with your family, then there's a strong possibility your family isn't in the Word at all. So really, as parents, doesn't it make sense, Pat, that for us to be the parents, the grandparents that, that our kids, our grandkids need us to be, it begins with our walk with God. And so I challenge moms and dads throughout this book that you're never going to be the parent your kids need. More importantly, God created you to be unless you are working to grow your relationship with God. And so I talk about what it means to just get started. Uh, if you don't have a personal devotional time, to set aside 15 minutes a day and, and just get started reading the Bible and praying, and then begin to implement the same with your family. Dinner time is the best time to have devotional time with your family, because you got to eat, so while you're eating, you might as well talk. I remember growing up, Pat, my daddy, two things he did. He did consistently these two things. We had dinner together, and we read the Bible together at dinner mm. consistently every week. And so I've never forgotten that. We do that in our home now. And so dinner time, especially for busy families, again, is the perfect time. Get in the Word, pray with your family, get your kids involved, get them involved in the process, reading the Bible and praying uh, at the dinner table, and just look for simple ways to get God's Word in front of your family. It will shape your kids in immeasurable ways. It will shape them in ways that will lead them and guide them and protect them. And more importantly, it will help you grow in your relationship with God. That's an important part of the book. Jeffrey Dean is our guest. Uh, His new book is called Raising Successful Teens. Random House is the publisher. Teens and dating. That's a big topic, isn't it, Jeffrey? (laughs) That is a big topic. I tell you, we are asked so so many questions about, you know, when should my student date and what does a healthy dating life look like? Um, but interestingly, the question um, that we're asked most is, you know, what do I tell my kid? You know, is, is it okay for them to date? Is it okay for them to date a non-Christian? Uh, should they date in middle school? Should they date in high school? I get the what question all the time. And so we devoted an entire chapter to dating to helping families understand that really dating begins with God and to define what a healthy dating life should look like and to set boundaries. Because, Pat, I don't know about you, but growing up, I really can't ever remember my mom and my dad talking to me about my dating life. I just kind of jumped into it with no parameters, no really probably healthy expectations, really no boundaries. And so we help parents establish boundaries in this in this book of helping parents understand uh, that, hey, you know what, it's okay not to date. If you have a student who wants to go solo, if you have a student who hasn't been on a date, it, it's okay to encourage uh, that oftentimes not dating is, well, living drama-free. And so there's a lot of students out there, I think, who just want permission not to date. We hear that a lot from kids. I really don't want to date. My mom's kind of pushing me to date or everybody expects me to date. 
really, I think that's a great place to, to take your child to help them understand. It's okay if you don't date, but if you do, here are some parameters. So in the book, we talk about, here's a really important one, Pat, helping your, your child define who is dateable. Because not everyone should be dateable. I tell my daughters often, you should never lower your expectations. You should never lower or compromise your character for anyone else. And if you feel as though you've got to compromise who you are just to get a date with him, then there's a strong possibility that consequences are going to become your best friend. So helping our kids understand what character looks like, who is dateable, who they shouldn't date, and then, of course, what it looks like to honor God in your dating life. So critical. We've got a whole chapter on that. And then a follow-up chapter about sex, because really dating and sex these days, as you know, go hand in hand. So we talk for, for parents in this book about what it means to help your students understand God's plan for sex, one man, one woman for one life, and what it looks like to honor him throughout your dating years. You will never regret honoring God in your dating life. Jeffrey Dean is our guest. we got another segment with Jeffrey talking about his book, Raising Successful Teens. You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Jeffrey Dean is with us, uh, Raising Successful Teens. Jeffrey, I'm still chuckling over that statement you made that in your house, you don't remember your parents ever talking to you about dating. Well... <clears throat> join the club. Um, I, I look back to my high school years, Jeffrey. I didn't tell my parents anything about my dating right. life, which wasn't overwhelmingly good, but I, they never heard a word, and they never said a word to me, and I just silently went about it. Um, I guess that was back in the 50s, but uh, I chuckled when you said the same thing, so... Uh, we're, we're cl- yeah, and I think you're right. I, I don't remember having those conversations with my parents. My father was a man of the word, and he pushed us to the word. But when it came to those conversations, those personal, intimate parts of my life, we just never had those conversations. And today I tell parents, you can't afford not to have those conversations. Our oh. kids are looking for help and for hope and for answers, and they're counting on us. Your kids may never come to you and ask you a question about their dating life. They may never ask you a question about a a pornography struggle. They may never ask you a question about sex. But I can tell you, after years of working with students, our kids are hungry for answers. And I have, Pat, I have never met a kid struggling with their dating life, their sex life, their porn life, who wants to continue struggling. I've never met that kid. Mm. They want freedom. And freedom begins with communication. So mom and dad, we've got to lead the charge, no matter how challenging it is. We've got to lead the charge in having these conversations. I tell parents everywhere, you've got to be willing to have the awkward conversations. You've got to be approachable. You've got to be unshockable. You've got to lead the charge because your kids need to know truth. They need to hear truth. And you need to be the one to communicate that to them. Such good stuff. Jeffrey, <clears throat> what do you teach about teens and suicide? Yeah, we we actually uh, wrote the book and then realized, you know what, we we need to tackle this issue because we are hearing from families across America who are, are losing a son or losing a daughter, and uh, we we have students obviously who contact our ministry. You know, suicide, sadly, um, it, 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 it's an epidemic. We call it an epidemic in the book because so many students are, are struggling. And doesn't it really make sense as you connect the dots? We, we live in this, in this incessant world telling our students that um, they've got to look a certain way and dress a certain way and be a certain pe- person. Our, our kids are being defined, sadly, by the mirror or how many social media followers they have and so many students are looking at their friends or seeing their friends are online or looking in the mirror and just feeling as though they don't measure up and so sadly many of them are taking their lives and so i talk we added an appendix to the book uh and i talked to parents about the importance of validating your team's feelings about helping them understand their value and their significance the key to that really rest in your involvement in their life and spending time with them, 
of talking to them about suicide. This, I think this is really important. I'm not so sure that it's an approach many parents take, but have you ever told your son, your daughter, hey, it's never okay to kill yourself? But some parents would say, well, I, I just don't want to go there. I don't want to put that thought in their mind. Well, you know, we talk in the book often about going the extra mile, even when you don't think it's necessary. And so this is one conversation that your kids need you to have with them to let them know I deeply love you. My life would be terrible without you. Saying whatever you feel, but saying it in a way where your, your kid hears you clearly say, it is never okay to take your life. There is nothing that you will ever face in life hard enough that warrants and deserves and justifies you ending your life. And so we, we talk about warning signs in the book. Uh, if your kids are talking about wanting to die or, or kill themselves, if your daughter's actively looking for a way to end their life, if he's talking about hopelessness, if he talks about feelings of being trapped or that he's a burden to others, if she sleeps too much, if he withdraws from friends, if he displays extreme mood swings, or if she shows rage, there are 20 different warning signs we talk about in the book. Uh, the key here is you can't ignore those warning signs. You cannot ignore the warning signs. We put the 1-800-273-8255 National Suicide Prevention Hopeline uh, in the book as well. But parents, it may, as you're listening today, it may seem like suicide is a topic, a conversation you just don't need to have with your kids. I tell parents, every kid is only one choice away from tragedy. And even when those moments happen, oftentimes parents say, I didn't see it coming. So oftentimes you don't see it coming. So this is a conversation you got to have with your kids. They tell them, I love you. I'm in it with you. Nothing you ever face justifies in in your life. Such an important conversation every parent must have with their kids. Jeffrey, how does a teen know how to commit suicide? Well, sadly, uh, the information is a click away. Mm -hmm. Many students we, that we've counseled with, you know, who are struggling with suicidal thoughts or as, you know, we visit students in hospitals who've attempted suicide, they almost always tell me, Pat, I went to the Internet for information. Really? So, again, that, that's why keeping tabs on your kid's Internet life, their social life, is so critical that they go to the Internet and just Google how to kill myself, how to attempt suicide. One of the most popular uh, series right now, actually it's the second most popular series on Netflix right now, is dealing with suicide. And it's a story called 13 Reasons. Uh, they're now shooting season four. And I was privileged at the end of season one to fly to LA, LA and interview one of the actors of the show. This is the most popular TV show um, via Netflix that this generation is watching. 13 Reasons Why. Parents, you need to know about 13 Reasons Why. It's a show built around a girl who, before she kills herself, she records 13 tapes, gives it to 13 people in her life to tell them, this is why I'm ending my life. Very popular series. We have seen uh, students just mesmerized by this show. So suicide is on the mind of this generation. If not something they're thinking about doing, they're watching this show they're drawn to this show. So parents, I tell you, again, you've got to keep tabs on what your kids are doing. And a great way is just to uh, know what they're watching, ask them what they're watching, Google popular TV shows, Googler, Google popular apps, Google popular websites, and you'll, you'll be immersed into the world of students, and you'll learn a lot about their culture just by educating yourself on their culture. Really important step parents must be taking to keep tabs on what it is that our kids are learning from the world. Jeffrey, um, uh, I raised my children in the uh, 70s and 80s. I'm kind of glad I don't have to do it now. Mm. I tell you, Pat, it, it's a new world. It sure is. And my, my daughters, you know, we, my wife and I, we, we have the conversation often that what will another five years look like for them, another 10 years look like for them. It seems the world is just, you know, it's in fast-paced mode and things are changing constantly and it's tough for parents to keep up. And so that's why in the book I define what success looks like because it's impossible, Pat, for us as parents to keep up with everything. It's impossible for us to keep tabs on everything. And so I remind parents in this book that success isn't having a perfect kid and it's not you being a perfect parent. Instead, it's just working to guide your student towards truth because they're living in this ever-changing world and they're constantly being told truth is whatever you want it to be. And so it's my goal for my daughter's to help teach them the difference between right and wrong and just what it means to honor God 
In Matthew 22, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So as it relates to success for our kids, isn't this what we should be shooting for? To teach our kids, above all, to aspire to love Jesus Christ with every facet of their lives. That is the key to success. That is why I wrote this book. And Jeffrey, a a, a final comment here. When I was uh, raising that brood of uh, 19 children that we had, uh, we adopted 14 of them over the years, but they were involved. 19 children. Yes. That's incredible, Pat. 19 children. We had had one year, Jeff, when 16 of our kids were all teenagers at at the same time for one year. (laughs) That's uh, a reality TV show right there, Pat. Oh, yeah. But, But here's what I learned. Uh, I, I I kept them so busy with sports and cheerleading and gymnastics and uh, and on baseball, soccer, uh, et cetera, that w- when nighttime came, they were exhausted and uh, they slept. And then the next day, the same. And uh, that that's just one dad's uh, approach. Uh, Jeff, we got to run. Jeffrey Dean, what a, what a great half hour raising successful teens. Um, we're back next weekend for more. But first, we've got a wrap up here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, Chris Norton in that first segment uh, talking about his book, The Seven Longest Yards. And then Jeffrey Dean joined us, uh, based out of Nashville. Uh, Raising Successful Teens is his book. Interesting chat with uh, Jeff Dean. Uh, My latest book is out. It's called Lead Like Walt. Uh, We look at Walt Disney through the narrow focus of leadership. What was it about Walt Disney that made him such a great leader? And what can we learn from him? That book is out now. It's in bookstores in the business section at Uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, always a wonderful way to order books. Uh, So have a wonderful week ahead. And we're back next weekend for more right here at the new AM 990 and FM 101.5 The Word. The show is called the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And you have a wonderful week ahead.